Turn with me, please, now, or listen on as I read Acts chapter 19, verses 1 through 7. I had thought originally, if you had seen the original draft of the bulletin, that I was going to do all of chapter 19. The more I spent time with verses 1 through 7, it became clear that a study of these verses was worthwhile in its own right. So just verses 1 through 7. And hear God's word. And it happened while Apollos was at Corinth that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus and finding some disciples, he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? So they said to him, we have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said to them, into what then were you baptized? So they said into John's baptism. Then Paul said, John indeed baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, that is, on Jesus Christ. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. Now the men were about twelve in all. Let us pray together. Dear Lord, uh, we thank you again for your word. Every, Every word, every page is precious to us. It's full of meaning. It's full of power. At the same time, the the word and the power might miss us completely if you don't bring it home to us by your Holy Spirit. And we trust that Holy Spirit, just as you use the preaching in Acts, so you might use it in our day. Use it to bring your word home to us, we humbly pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you if you take the trouble to look at the title of the sermon, you'll see that I entitled this sermon Pentecost in Ephesus question mark. Was this a kind of Uh, Pentecost that was occurring there, much like occurred in Jerusalem. Another way that we could speak of Pentecost, and certainly we find Jesus speaking of it this way, and as well the apostles Peter and Paul, uh, the gift of the Spirit or the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, let's just look at that phrase, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That has been, uh, maybe you all know this, maybe some of you don't, but that that became a subject of serious interest in the church in the 20th century uh, with the charismatic movement. Uh, Many of you have spent time in charismatic churches. I have, as, as you all know by now. Baptism with or the baptism of the Holy Spirit. This is something that Christians have been grappling with intensely and even uh, disagreeing over. And those of you who have spent any amount of time in the charismatic churches, I have know exactly what I'm talking about. The emphasis on the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And what you would have experienced if you spent any amount of time as I did in the charismatic church is that this text, Acts chapter 19, verses 1 through 7, is perhaps... Their cardinal text. Uh, I will say perhaps they have others, but I, I would say this is most likely what they point to when they speak of spirit baptism as a second blessing. Not what the believer receives when he becomes a believer, baptism with the Holy Spirit, but someone becoming a believer then experiencing uh, a second experience of grace that they call spirit baptism. They use this text. This is the key text. This is the cardinal text. And so for to refute their error, we must understand this text for itself. 
uh, for ourselves and uh, on its own terms. Now, let me say something else, uh, because this is one of the reasons the charismatic movement uh, gathered so many people in. I don't know if that's true anymore. I know that was true in the 20th century. I, I, I just can't say. I don't know what, what the case is today. But one of the reasons that the charismatic church had such broad appeal is because they were speaking directly to Christian experience. By the way, that's why I love the Puritans, because they speak directly to Christian experience. And yet, can we not admit at times that we reformed believers don't always do the best job of that? We don't always do the best job of defining our own experiences of grace, our own experiences of the Holy Spirit. Well, let me tell you what I'm talking about in particular as it relates to this text and the teaching of the charismatic church. From my own experience as a young believer, I had, uh, I had to grapple with these issues for myself as one who sought to understand the life and the ministry of uh, the Holy Spirit. In, in doing so, I read countless books. Many of them I have by my side. Not all of them are Reformed authors. But it never did sit quite well with me that the Holy Spirit was given in stages rather than all at once. I never could accept that, even though I spent my time in the charismatic church. Somehow or other, I knew that had to be wrong. At the same time, and and speaking of the charismatic uh, appeal to Christian experience, along the way, shortly after my conversion, or sometime after my conversion, I should say, I had a decisive second experience of grace. And many of you could uh, speak of something similar. Uh, Many of you have had uh, a second experience of grace after conversion. Now, this is something the believer is trying to understand as well. Not just who the Holy Spirit is, but how do I make sense of my varied experiences of the Holy Spirit? I had an experience in conversion, but then two years later, there was this other dramatic, powerful experience experience. The charismatic church comes along with its answer and says, aha, that's the baptism of the Holy Spirit. You were converted at 13 and 15. You were baptized with the Spirit. Again, I could never accept that. But there is their answer. What is our answer? Do we have an answer for that? We do. And I hope to share it with you. And so we're not merely exegeting Or explaining the teaching of the Bible. What we are ultimately seeking to do. Well, I shouldn't say ultimately. That is what we're ultimately seeking to do is explain the Bible. But in addition to that, we are seeking to understand our own experience of what the Bible is describing. And with the Bible on our side, I think we can do it better than any charismatic ever could. The thing that ultimately helped me the most in in my uh, Christian life as a young Christian grappling with the Holy Spirit, grappling with uh, a decisive second experience of grace, uh, was my time at Westminster Seminary. This is an area which Westminster Seminary is very strong in, especially uh, studying under Dr. Gaffin. Uh, Many of you, I'm sure, are familiar with his little book, Perspectives on Pentecost. Uh, It's a good refutation of the charismatic movement. Uh, And yet it also helpfully explains our own experiences of the Holy Spirit in the Christian life. It's the best treatment I'm aware of. If you want to read anything on the subject, uh, Pentecost or Spirit Baptism from a Reformed perspective, get this book. Another very helpful book is uh, Sinclair Ferguson on the Holy Spirit. 
Uh, there, there are books I haven't read, I'm sure, which are helpful. George Smeaton on the Holy Spirit. Now, that's one I want to read. I'll t- maybe another day I'll tell you about that. But where I want to begin, and, and Gaffin begins here. If you're familiar with Gaffin's arguments, you'll, you'll recognize at once what I'm doing. I'm just simply repeating more or less his arguments. I want to begin at Pentecost. I don't want to begin at Ephesus. I want to begin in Jerusalem. So Pentecost and the gift of the Holy Spirit, that must be our starting point. We don't start in Acts 19. We start in Acts chapter 2. What we find in Acts chapter 19, as I hope to point out, is clearly exceptional. It is not normative. It is exceptional. Even from the standpoint of what was happening in Acts, it was exceptional. And you don't legislate for special cases. This is something we teach our children. Hopefully, at least, we teach our children the exception does not disprove the rule, it proves the rule. But you don't, you don't legislate for the exception, you legislate for the rule. This is exceptional. And so, well, let me put it like this, you don't make a rule out of the exception. That's what the charismatics are doing. And even as they do it, they don't understand what was actually happening here. So begin with the rule, the norm, the foundation, which occurs... On the day of Pentecost, and I want to turn there in my Bible, Acts chapter 2. What happens on the day of Pentecost is that the gift of the Spirit is given. Now, John's teaching will come up in this passage. Uh, Paul will interact with disciples of John. And what John had predicted, he said, I baptize you with water for repentance, but the one who is coming after me, who is mightier than I, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. What John was saying is that I am only able to baptize you with water, but Jesus will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. That will be his special ministry to you. And so the gift of the Spirit is the gift of Jesus Christ upon the church. And in light of what Peter says on Pentecost, the gift of the Spirit is the gift of the resurrected and ascended Lord upon his Church, this is what was longed for and predicted all through the Old Testament, all the way up to the preaching of John the Baptist. Acts chapter 2 verse 33 sums it up well. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he, that is Jesus, poured out this which you now see and Here, the gift of Jesus Christ upon the church. Indeed, uh, the way Gaffin puts it, and this is the kind of thing you have to think about. So I'm going to say it even though I'm saying I'm not even sure about it. I'm still thinking about it. But he says, in fact, when he poured out the Spirit, he constituted the church. He established the church, at least the New Testament church. But when we speak of Pentecost as our starting point, we must appreciate its unique Redemptive historical significance. Pentecost only happens once. Just as Jesus Christ only comes uh, in his humiliation once. Just as he only dies on the cross once. And only is raised from the dead once. And only ascends once having been raised from the dead. These are unique, redemptive, historical, non-repeatable Events. They are pivotal events in the history of redemption. They are once for all. And what I'm saying is that we must appreciate, especially we, we, we would appreciate if we listen to Peter on Pentecost, how the gift of the Spirit is tied up in these other pivotal 
events. Jesus Christ was crucified. Jesus Christ laid in the tomb. Jesus Christ was raised from the dead and he ascended to the Father. And then he poured out the Holy Spirit. That is a complex of events that we could speak of even as one single event. Again, never to be repeated. And so what happens at Pentecost is that the Spirit is given. How is he given? Well, he is poured out on the church by the resurrected Lord. Or let me put it like this, because I think this is especially helpful when, we, when speaking of how it is the believer of the new covenant now enjoys the Spirit in contrast or in distinction from the believer in the old covenant. The Spirit is poured out, and by the way, baptized, poured out, are the same word, the same idea. He is poured out on the church as the spirit of the resurrected Lord. You see, the church in the Old Testament had the Holy Spirit, but not like this. Not only that, but we also see that there was now a fullness, an effusion of the spirit that was not enjoyed in the same way in the Old Covenant. No longer, for instance, did you have the distinction between the prophets and the ordinary people. Now, uh, regular people, regular believers, even children, young children, could be full of the Spirit in the same way the prophets were. Amazing to see. But the prophets themselves predicted this. And now Peter is saying, this is exactly what is happening. What has happened. All alike enjoying the same Spirit in the same measure as Joel predicted. And as they witnessed on the day of Pentecost. Well, you see, this has to be our starting point. And once we realize the uniqueness of Pentecost, once we see that Pentecost placed the church in a new position and a new relation to God, we do not look for its repetition any more than we look for other key events to be repeated. We do not look for Christ to be crucified again. We do not look for Christ to be raised again. So we do not look for the spirit to be uh, for spirit baptism or, or Pentecost to be repeated either. However, that doesn't mean the effects of Pentecost are confined to the day of Pentecost any more than the effects of the death of Jesus Christ and the resurrection of Jesus Christ are confined to the days on which they occurred. And so we should look at it like this. These are once for all events, never to be repeated. It would be wrong to speak of Pentecost at Ephesus, but it would be right to say that the effects of Pentecost were being felt in Ephesus. They were being felt in Cornelius' home. The effects of Pentecost were being felt in this church when it was constituted. They were being felt when you were born again. The effects of the Spirit uh, being poured out of Pentecost are being felt to this day, and they will continue to be felt until Christ returns. All of the history that we read of in Acts is the history of the effects of Pentecost. The, the, way that, uh, the way that Ferguson puts it, I think, is very helpful, which I quoted in my revival sermon. He says, Pentecost is the epicenter But the earthquake gives forth further aftershocks. Those rumbles continue through the ages. Pentecost itself is not repeated, but a theology of the spirit, which did not give rise to prayer for his coming in power, would not be a theology of Ruach. Theology of the spirit, a theology of power. Well, there is Ferguson's illustration. I think it's a good one. 
The earthquake happens once, but its effects are being felt to this day. Uh, The way that uh, Ferguson puts it, let me see if I can find it, because I don't remember exactly how he says. Uh, He he says there are extensions of Pentecost. That's another way you can look at it. Pentecost happens, but it's extending. It's broadening out. Uh, John Stott says that Pentecost caught up to these disciples of John, even as it caught up to us when we believed and we were baptized in the spirit. So it's not as though Pentecost occurred again in our in our lives, but rather Pentecost uh, caught up to us. Well, with that in mind, let us come next to this strange and unusual case of the disciples in Ephesus, these 12 disciples and what happened to them. We've seen the the the. Uh, We've seen Pentecost as the rule. Here's an exceptional case. At least that's how I'm treating it. Although the the Pentecostals, which we'll come to, they treat it as not exceptional, but as normative. The strange and unusual case of the disciples in Ephesus is the second point. What made the case here exceptional was this. And we read it here in the text. It's as plain as day once you see it. That these disciples had received the baptism of John only. John himself said, I'm going to baptize you with water, but he who's coming after me is going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Already you're aware of the distinction. They had only received the first part. They had been baptized at the baptism of John. They had yet to experience the second baptism. Already the picture should be clear, but let me continue to unfold it. They had only become aware of Jesus through the teaching of John. So they were still, as it were, under the old dispensation, as John himself was. In that sense, Michael Green, he wrote another one of the books that I read, Michael Green, I believe in the Holy Spirit, though this book is a little too charismatic for my liking. Nevertheless, he suggests that they weren't even technically Christians yet, and I agree with Michael Green. Understanding a Christian as someone who has heard the Christian gospel and believed it. Well, while they, while they believed John's message about Jesus and received John's baptism, they were not yet Christian believers in that sense, which Paul falsely assumed. He thought they were, but they weren't. They hadn't, they tell him, even heard of the Holy Spirit. Paul is saying to them, how is it that you didn't receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? This is a perplexing case to him. I'll come back to that in a moment. They say we hadn't even heard of the Holy Spirit beyond what John had predicted. But what they were really saying is, They were totally ignorant as concerned the events that occurred at Pentecost. And so what was necessary in their case, now that Pentecost had occurred, was that they needed to come out of the old dispensation into the new. They were old covenant believers. They needed to come into the new covenant. And that was something, you know, John himself never experienced, who lived and died under the old covenant. But it was something that many of his disciples were able to do. Notice how it happens. It happens as a result of teaching. First of all, faith comes by hearing. Well, look at this. Then Paul said, John indeed baptized at the baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him. That is on Christ Jesus. When they heard this and and we'll leave it there. The point is, and and certainly this is a summary in verse four. 
But Paul was preaching. He was teaching them, even as uh, uh, Aquila and Priscilla had done to Apollos. Now Paul was instructing them more accurately in the ways of God, in the truth. And when they heard this, they, they were baptized. So the first thing that happened is that they, they, uh, the gospel was preached to them and they believed it. The second thing that happened is that they were baptized. Christian baptism, this time in the name of Jesus, unlike baptism for repentance by John. And so faith coming by hearing, baptism. And then number three, following this, we read that they received the gift of the Spirit. Now, this is the all-important point to the Charismatics. The laying on of hands, the filling of the Holy Spirit. What we see here is faith, baptism, and the Holy Spirit. Those are the three, the three things that Luke focuses upon. Here was the difference they now enjoyed. They received the gift of the Spirit as the gift of, of the New Covenant. Or as I put it earlier, the gift of the Spirit was the Spirit of the resurrected Lord. And this brought them all into a new relation with the Lord Jesus and even into a new relation with the Holy Spirit himself. These things are difficult to describe and understand ourselves because, you see, we were never on the other side. We never knew what it was like to be a disciple of John and then to become a full-fledged disciple of Jesus. It's easy for us to say, you know, they didn't have what we now have, and that's true enough. But we also at times, I think, tend to despise what they had and not realize that they had the same spirit. They're not in the same way. And what they all needed was to receive the Holy Spirit now as the blessing and the gift of the the new covenant. Only then would they rightly belong to it. Again, John himself had the Holy Spirit, but never in this way. Of course, John himself had predicted this. He had taught his disciples to look for it, to expect it. So there was nothing at all surprising about this to a devoted disciple of John like these 12 men were. Baptism by the Holy Spirit would be the unique gift of Jesus Christ. And only once he had risen from the dead. John couldn't give it, and so they couldn't receive it until... These men came into contact with the apostles themselves. And when this occurred, it looked like Pentecost all over again. Paul laid hands on them. The Holy Spirit came upon them and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. That looks an awful lot like Pentecost, doesn't it? But it wasn't Pentecost all over again. It was not a Pentecost in Ephesus. It was merely as we have seen It's after effects. But we see at any rate why they didn't receive the gift of the Holy Spirit when they believed. And now they did. Notice too, and I said I'd return to this, so let me do so now. How Paul seems perplexed at first. How is it that you do not have the Spirit seeing that you believe? Somehow or other it was evident to him that these believers did not enjoy The Holy Spirit. His assumption was that those who believe will, of course, have the Spirit. And you see how that already overturns the notion of the charismatic who believes that the the, the gift of the Spirit comes after conversion rather than is part and parcel of it. Well, the reason that Paul assumed this is because that is the normal expectation. Didn't Peter preach that? Believe on the Lord Jesus and you will receive the gift of the Spirit. 
Wasn't it Peter himself on Pentecost who married these two ideas together? It's the normal experience of believers. It's the normal expectation that when when a man believes the gospel as a Christian believer, he receives the gift of the spirit. Indeed, he realizes that his faith really was the result of the gift of the spirit so that it becomes difficult for him to say, now, which came first, my faith or the gift? I think if you press me, I'd have to say the gift, because how how did I ever come by such faith, if not by the spirit working it in me and making me a Christian? It's so unusual that a man would believe and yet not have the spirit that it warrants this question again. How is it that you did not receive the spirit when you believed? And it wasn't until he heard their answer that he realized his mistake. They hadn't really believed in the way that he had assumed. What they believed was the message of John, not that yet of Jesus himself. That is the whole key to understanding this strange an unusual case. And it reveals, by the way, how it really has no parallel today. How could you possibly apply this passage today? For you do not find anymore those who still belong to the old covenant, those who are disciples of John looking for the coming of Christ and yet who are unaware that he has actually come and that Pentecost has happened. There really is no parallel to this today. Well, that leads me very briefly to the third Point, and that is uh, the false teaching which arises on the matter. I think I've more or less said enough, but let me just state it again very briefly. And that is the charismatic teaching that describes a twofold experience of believers. That someone has faith in Jesus Christ, but somehow or other uh, down the line, he is enabled uh, very often through the ministry of a preacher laying hands on him to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so much of the charismatic church is taken up with this. If you've ever been to one of their services, you'll see they're saying, I understand you're a believer, but you need to come down so that we can lay hands on you and you can receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Again, I went to many, many, many services of, the, uh, of, the, of this kind and never once did it sit well with me. And I wondered all along whether perhaps it was the Holy Spirit himself prompting me in another direction. And yet, that is the teaching. The teaching is uh, converted and somewhere down the line baptized with the Holy Spirit. Many people, they say, are like these disciples. They had faith, but they did not yet enjoy the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And so they take these separate experiences and they call them uh, conversion on the one hand and baptism in the Holy Spirit at some later date. A Christian, just think of what they're saying, a Christian It's possible for a Christian not to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. It's possible, it would seem, they're saying for a Christian not even to have the Holy Spirit. Well, this leads me to the Holy Spirit today as my fourth and final point. How are we to understand his ministry today in light of this teaching and in light of our experience of his work in us? The true view is something more like this. That every believer in Jesus Christ receives the Holy Spirit when he believes. Again, this is what Peter said on Pentecost. Peter said, Acts chapter 2, verse 38. Let me see here. Verse 38. Peter said to them, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. You shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This is a gift that he promised them upon Belief upon their entrance or their initiation into the Christian life, not at some later date, but on the very day they believed. 
on the very day they became Christians and were baptized. We do not find Peter saying that you are going to have to wait for a second blessing. The blessing is available now. It is promised to you all. The believer gets the blessing just as soon as he becomes a Christian. He's baptized with the Holy Spirit. Nothing could be plainer than that. And again, it's only as we understand that, as the clear teaching of Scripture, that we understand why Paul was so perplexed by these people whom he thought were Christians and yet who did not have the Spirit. He didn't say, well, of course you don't have the Spirit. You need the second blessing. He said, no, how is this possible that you are believers and do not have the Spirit? But again, we need to see that these were not Christian disciples, but were disciples of John. That is why they did not receive the Holy Spirit upon believing. But carry the thought through and you will see the normal experience and expectation of believers in Jesus Christ is that they will receive the gift of the Spirit when they believe. Pentecost happened so long ago, but as John Stott puts it, it catches up with us when we believe. So that we too are baptized by the Holy Spirit, even as those many thousands were on that day. And just as we must not divorce Pentecost from the other events that surround it, so we must not divorce our experience of Pentecost or our baptism in the Holy Spirit from the events which ordinarily surround it. Does that mean that there will never again be another exception to this rule? As we find here in Acts chapter 19, I doubt it. There are always exceptions, but again, you don't legislate for special cases. You make what is normal and ordinary the rule. But seeing Pentecost like this, this also helps us to understand our own second experiences of grace. As I said, I had a second experience of grace. Many of you have as well. This helps us even if now we see this really was not the case of these disciples. It really was for them a first experience, not a second. But many of us have a second experience. Well, what's a second experience of grace? My answer is this. It's merely becoming full of the Spirit all over again. And we see this almost immediately after Pentecost. We read what we do in, in, in Acts chapter 2 and then... We turn a page over in chapter 4, verse 31, and we read this. And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God with boldness. Not that they were baptized with the Holy Spirit, but they were, uh, they were once again filled with the Holy Spirit. They had another experience of the Spirit's power. It was similar to Pentecost, but it wasn't, it wasn't exactly the same. So call a second experience, whatever you like. I'm fine with a second experience. I know that makes some Reformed people uncomfortable. I'll, I'll stick with it. Call it a fresh outpouring. This is what we see in Acts over and over. You just have no right to call it spirit baptism. That's what I'm saying. For that is once for all, never to be repeated. Just like conversion. You don't have a fresh experience 
and say, I was born again, again. I know that it often feels that way. In fact, we often speak that way, and I've spoken that way. You know, when I had this other experience, it was as though I was born again, again. And it was so powerful that it made me question whether the first experience, was I even a Christian? But you see, you really have no right to do that. You can't say every time you're brought to a new mountain peak in the Christian life that I was born again. That is to make light of the work of conversion. Conversion is once for all. Again, I'm saying it often feels that way. It feels as though we're born again, again. But that's not what's happening. It would be more accurate to call it something else. And to realize that my second experience was only possible on the basis of the first It's because I was converted. It's because I was born again. It's because I was baptized with the Holy Spirit that I am able to experience these further blessings in the Christian life. And so it's on the basis of our spirit baptism, which occurs at the beginning of the Christian life, that we experience so many other blessings which follow. Yes, of course, the believer may expect a second experience of grace. And while we're at it, a third and many more besides. Don't you see that? Given the realities of Pentecost, given the realities of the outpouring of the spirit, the believer is now someone who is filled with the Holy Spirit. He's indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And it is on that basis that the possibility of further and future blessing is all but certain. How could the Holy Spirit limit his work to a single day in the believer's life? Don't you see what's really happening? Of course, the power of Pentecost will be known not only in our conversion or our spirit baptism, but will be known throughout the Christian life and at times in very dramatic and powerful ways. How could it not? Indeed, if I were to speak of this a little bit differently, can you not, and does not the Bible say to a man who is full of the Spirit, be filled with the Spirit? Isn't that what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5? He says, be filled with the Spirit. Chapter 5, verse 18. I'll tell you what he's not doing. He's, den- he's not denying the presence of the Spirit in the believer. He's not saying, you're empty of the Spirit, be filled with the Spirit. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is this. You who are full of the Spirit, be filled with the Spirit. Much as he says in other places, you who are dead to sin, go on dying to sin. Do you understand that's the whole logic of the Christian life? That's the whole logic. Well, let me give you another book, though I don't know I could recommend it these days. The Wonderful Spirit-Filled Life by Charles Stanley. At any rate, I like the title. And much of the teaching is sound. The Wonderful Spirit-Filled Life is going on from grace to grace and ever reaching new heights in the fullness of the spirit. The ever growing realization of what of what is true of us as Christians already and what is true of us as Christians already, that we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, which is to have Christ in me. And not only do I realize it as something as a thought that I have and that I wonder at, but this is. An experience that I'm enjoying more and more and more. The explosive, the dynamic power of grace in my life. Where uh, by did I come by such power? By the Holy Spirit in me. 
Christ in me. Spirit baptism. That's the secret. And that's what we find in Acts. And that's what explains our own experience as Christians. And so let us not be muddled in our thinking as, as some seem to be. And as many of us once were. But at the same time, let us all be open to what it means to be filled with the Spirit. Let us seek uh, together to be filled with the Spirit more and more. And let us go on to be as full of the Spirit as we possibly can and to have as many experiences of His grace as we possibly can. Amen. And let us return our praise to God by standing together and singing hymn 209.